Well, thank you for having me here. Just want to say a special thank you to Dr. Tatlock and the Masters Academy International. Uh, it is a joy to be here. I think it could go without saying, but I'll say it. Uh, better men have done more than me for longer. So I view this as a privilege. I don't deserve this. It's an honor to be here. And also it's not lost on me that there are many missionaries and pastors here that have been sacrificing for the gospel on the front lines for decades. So thank you for your ministry. Uh, it is because of a long tenured faithful ministry, of course, Dr. MacArthur, uh, that I was converted due to his work and the work of my pastor who's a faithful local pastor as well. So we need the church, and it was an honor to be invited here to talk about the church. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. We'll begin in verse 28. And while you turn there, I'll explain my assignment, which is to outline certain doctrines that are assaulting the church as I've lived them and experienced them on one side. So the reckless doctrines that are wreaking havoc with biblical ecclesiology and then also to put a solution before you, and that'll be the churchman's devotion. What are we supposed to do? Pastor Conrad, of course, did a wonderful job, as did all the other speakers, of explaining uh, what type of church we should have. I want to talk to you about the kind of leader that you should be, because one of the main ways that the enemy assaults the church is not necessarily with persecution from the outside while that is happening, and not necessarily uh, with other religions that are distractions. That does happen, but truly what we're seeing today is the enemy do what he has always done, and that is assault the church from within. If you want a healthy church, you have to get two things right. We can talk about the ordinances as they pertain to ecclesiology. We can talk about church leadership. Uh, structures. You can talk about congregationalism and plurality, uh, singing, styles, membership, all the formalities of ecclesiology. And those are important, but I would argue, and I think you could too, that if you really want to do the church in, you just have to take out two things. First, you assault the person of Christ. Second, you assault the proclamation of the gospel. If you nail those two things, it doesn't matter what formalities you have. It doesn't matter what methods you can come up with ecclesiologically. The church is sunk. And what the enemy has always done is he will seek to undercut the legs of the church by attacking the head of it. We see this in the early church. We see it today across the world. And Satan hates the church. It was Martin Luther who said, wherever God builds a church, the devil will build a chapel right next door. He aims to wreak absolute havoc, and the primary means by which he assaults the person of Christ and the proclamation of the gospel is by infiltrating church leadership. People today say, we need a reformation. We need social constructs, and we need racial reconciliation. And of course, speakers have explained the different races and ethnicities that need to come together. I would argue, and I think you could too as well, we need a leadership reformation. There are imposters in pulpits, both in America and around the world. Those of you who train pastors and leaders, those of you who are missionaries, you've seen it. The church is not necessarily the church, even if people profess to be the church, many of them are not. 
There are men and women, for that matter, that match Jude's description, their wild waves of the sea. They're casting up their foam in their shame. They profess to be wise, but in fact, they're fools. And so many people are buying into it. People are swept up because they don't know their Bible. I was asked recently, why is the prosperity gospel so pervasive? Why do you think people buy this stuff? And they wanted some expert answer as though at 34, I'm gonna woo them with my brilliance. I just told them the same thing all the other uh, gray-haired and white-haired men have been saying for 30 years. Biblical illiteracy is an issue in the church because for the last 30 years, people have been playing church. There is a reason why ministries are in high demand that are faithful to the word. And unfortunately, it's because they're so rare. We need people to know what the Bible says. And that starts with those who take the pulpit. In Acts chapter 20, Paul has called the elders down from Ephesus to journey some 60 miles to Miletus for final instructions. This is the farewell message He predicts the days ahead, and they're in tears. They know that they will see him no more, and Paul gives words that are sobering for us still today. He says in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. There it is. An assault is coming, Paul is saying, and it's not coming from the outside, it's coming from where? Within. In a similar way, Paul warns the church at Corinth by describing the type of false apostles that would seek to take their place in the church. They were literally being used by Satan to infiltrate the church. And people are very nervous to say that certain things are demonic today. There's a a type of culture where we don't really want to say things that go that far. Everybody just wants to say, well, we disagree on some things, things, but they're they're still a brother, or I don't want to judge the heart, or I don't want to go that far because you're going to lose followers on Twitter if you do. The truth is, Satan is in the business of deception, and a pastor and a church leader must be in the business of proclaiming the truth, no matter what the cost in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15, Paul says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, though, there's no surprise here. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. It's a wonder why anyone today in the church who holds the title of pastor or elder or missionary or leader is, is subtle about calling a spade a spade. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorites after I was converted, never heard of him before that, and then I found this whole new hall of heroes that many of you have known for your entire life. 
Ryle writes, inside the church, Satan is ever laboring to sow heresies, to propagate errors, to foster departures from the faith. If he cannot prevent the waters from flowing from the fountain of life, he tries hard to poison them. If he cannot destroy the medicine of the gospel, he strives to adulterate and corrupt it. No wonder he is called Apollyon the Destroyer. Satan is in the business of assaulting the church. We must be in the business of being faithful to the church. Like those at Ephesus, Corinth, and throughout history, the church today is facing a wave of false teachings and doctrines that need to be highlighted. We need to understand this onslaught of deception. I will highlight for you the prosperity gospel in one And I will also highlight what I like to call the mystical miracle movement. You may hear it as the New Apostolic Reformation. Not all who are in it claim to be apostles. Not all who are in it hold to all the same things. So mystical miracle movement seemed to fit the bill when we wrote the book Defining Deception because there's a whole lot of mysticism and a whole lot of false claims to the miraculous. They are like two tidal waves of delusion. And this is global. And if you're not aware of it, I want you to be aware of it. Because I guarantee if you're above the age of 40, your children, your teenagers, your youth groups, and your college kids are all aware of it. Recently, I was in India, and I was sitting with a group of pastors And it was the first time I had ever been to India since I was in the prosperity gospel. Many years ago, I got to go. I was working with my uncle. Uh, We flew in on a private plane. We stayed at the nicest hotels, and we served in ministry. And millions of people showed up to this crusade, and it was all a show and a song and dance. And I remember going to India thinking, wow, look at us doing ministry. Look at the millions of people. It it makes a crowd of 10,000 look like a small, fledgling church plant. I went to India this time and had the privilege of sitting with a group of really faithful pastors, for the most part, until one young man spoke up in a Q&A and he said, so what should we do? The prosperity gospel is everywhere in our country. In the south of India, there's a lot of Hinduism and persecution, but even when churches are Baptist or Lutheran or non-denominational or Pentecostal, they all seem to be swayed into the prosperity theology that's become so popular. And in the north of India, it's more Christianized, but all of them seem to compromise too. What do you expect us to do? And I I gave them a, a very boxed and packaged answer. They taught us this in seminary. Be faithful. It's pretty obvious. You just need to go to the Bible and see. Be faithful. And then he broke. He said, but you don't understand. They are leaving our churches if we don't preach some prosperity theology. How are we going to eat? How are we going to live? Most of us are bivocational as it is. How do you expect? Be faithful. They'll walk out the doors. And this older, wiser man who had stayed quiet, and that's how you know the young guys are in the room. They're the loudest. (laughs) And the old, wise man, bring you to tears, sat in the corner, and finally he spoke. He said, you be faithful. Faithfulness is what matters. You let the others worry about people pleasing. You be faithful. And this young man broke. And in the moment that I got to see it, you, you are witnessing, I was witnessing 
massed affection. Young pastors not knowing what to do. Older pastors telling them, be faithful. And that is just a microcosm of what's happening around the world. Pastor Conrad has said it before, the prosperity gospel is the number one U.S. export to Africa. You talk to leaders in Latin America, they'll quote and say that it's king of their region. And of course, we know we're no better here in America. So what does the prosperity gospel do to the gospel? What does that theology do to the gospel? What it does to the gospel is it poisons it. And I want to highlight some things that it does and it says, and this impacts our churches because it's really hard to get church right and to help people understand the function of the church if we can't get the gospel right. Would you agree? First, that the abundant life of John 10.10, the gospel itself, is earthly health and wealth. John 10.10, Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. That is an eternal, a spiritual promise. Anyone arguing otherwise has literally left the, the reservation of orthodoxy. But prosperity preachers would say that that means first world riches. The abundant life is yours now. Just name it and claim it. Why aren't you rich? Why aren't you healthy? Because you simply haven't tapped into what Jesus already died for. A famous prosperity preacher who's made it all the way to the advisory board of our president, Paula White, in her book, Living the Abundant Life, sitting in her backyard one day, enjoying her luxury, begins to say what sounds like an explanation of salvation. Listen to this. Paula, this is God talking to her. It has nothing to do with what you deserve. You're not sitting in your uh, pool or your jacuzzi because of anything you've done, because it's not of your works. It's because of the provision included in the blood covenant that you sit here today. So the blood of Christ in the prosperity gospel is simply a tool for wealth. That is a mockery of Christ's blood. You wanna boil that into something that we do very often, as often as we gather? Communion? So now the, the juice is simply what I take, knowing that by taking it and accepting it, the blood covenant of Christ had provided for the infinity pool that I'm going to go home to after church. It's a mockery of the precious blood of our master. That should matter to you and I. Two, the prosperity gospel teaches that God's a puppet and you're the puppet master, yet Psalms 115 verse 3 simply states our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But the prosperity gospel and its theology will say that you are the master of your destiny, the captain of your soul. God works for you. Yet Romans 9, 18 and 19 reminds us that God has mercy on whom he desires. He hardens who he desires. For who can resist his will? We serve a sovereign God. And it's important that in our churches we preach the sovereignty of God. But prosperity theology says you can control the creator. My uncle, Benny, says you can buy miracles with your money. You can make God do something. He says on a TBN fundraiser, make a pledge, make a gift. That's the only way you're gonna get your miracle. Miracles happen when you do something. As you give, the miracle will happen. All right, get to the phones and get busy. I can tell you from experience that the only thing those donation dollars ever did was pay for more jet fuel while we toured the world on a private airplane. 
I get emails monthly, and I don't want to exaggerate, monthly, sometimes weekly on certain times of the year, in which men and women will tell me their story. And I'll never forget one. I just spoke to a relative the other day. I said, do you remember so-and-so? And she said, absolutely. You know him? I said, yeah, he got saved out of all that madness too. This young man and his wife had given everything. They were hoping for conception. They just wanted a baby. So they gave. And our ministry at that time gave them a word of knowledge from the Lord saying, as you sacrifice, God will move in her womb. And so they gave everything. They sold the business. They gave it all. Who wouldn't for a child? No child. Bankruptcy. They finally hit rock bottom. And by God's grace, of course, that's where he meets many of us, doesn't he? But just now, they're beginning to rebuild their theology. They're beginning to understand what was. It'll, it'll literally take decades uh, to heal the emotional wounds. Of course, we know Christ can do that. We know his word will restore. We know that they'll be sanctified, but there are painful memories, and they share their stories time and time again. That is the damage of getting the sovereignty of God wrong. Third, prosperity theology teaches that confession isn't about sin. It's about stuff. 1 John 1, 9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Romans 10, 9 is clear that we confess with our mouth, we believe in our heart. There'll be evidence of your conversion and part of that evidence, of course, will be fruit in your life and the confession out of your mouth. And yet, men like Osteen and Copeland and others will tell you that confession isn't just about sin, that riches and healing and all of it is kind of a package deal with your salvation. You don't just confess your sin to Christ, you confess what you wanna have. Your words have creative power. Growing up, I did this as well. I used to confess Bentleys and Ferraris and mansions and big league dreams and whatever else have you. And then one day, I'll never forget it, we actually had an F430 Ferrari. And I drove it and had a good time with it. Here, actually, in Southern California, now, we got the Ferrari through a shady business deal, through a connection through our prosperity gospel ministry, and somebody actually went to jail because church people's money was involved. But what did I care? Jesus provided it. It got repoed after six months because of the arrest that happened, but it didn't matter. Jesus provided it. The twisted world of the prosperity gospel takes such beautiful things like the confession of a sinner before a holy God and it poisons it. Only Satan can come up with such a strategy. Fourth, the prosperity gospel teaches you won't suffer if you follow Jesus. Your life will be full of hundredfold blessings, beachfront houses, no issues with pregnancy, perfect little children. We all want those. Long life, nice stuff. And yet Paul says in Philippians 1.29 that it's been granted to you to suffer. It's actually a privilege. Tells the church over and over and over. We'll talk more in the second half of this message about what the imperative commands were to suffer with Paul. Imagine if we could just rewind church history. Bring all of the early church fathers and bring our, our blessed reformers all back over into 2019 and tell them, 
So there's this new thing. <laughs> it's been a while since Chalcedon. You can actually say things and, and kind of create your reality. And then preachers now, we, we, we live like rock stars. Well, I guess you don't know what rock stars are. We live like the Pope, all of us. <laughs> and, and here's the best part, Tyndale, Bill. <laughs> They're not gonna strangle you with a chain You'll live in a private gated mansion. They'll never get to you. You, you won't suffer. Could you imagine how ridiculous in light of the sacrifices, not just in the Reformation in the early church, but just go back to scripture. Let's just do a tour. John the Baptist beheaded. Jesus, our own Lord, crucified. Stephen stoned. Paul beaten, imprisoned persecuted, then killed. Where was his best life now? All 11 disciples martyred, but for John, maybe he was the one that was enjoying a prosperity lifestyle, but no, he was withering away on Patmos. That's the best it got. Polycarp, burnt then pierced. Tyndale, strangled to death then burnt. On and on, history shows the faithful servants of Christ will suffer. Anything else is but a lie. Fifth and finally, the prosperity gospel and its theology tramples on biblical prayer. Our mightiest weapon, the very thing we do even before we open the sacred book, is we bow before the author of it and we beg that he open our eyes and use us through it. They trample on prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in Matthew 6.10. In the garden, while his sweat was turning to blood, and he's about to go to the cross, he says, if possible, Father, let this cup pass for me, but not my will, but yours be done. Yet prosperity theology, and I remember this growing up, you are not allowed to say, your will be done. Our son, our nine-month-old has cancer, can't pray your will be done, Lord. You can't have a child, you can't pray, thy will be done, Lord. That's weak faith. All of our heroes from the early days, whether it be a, a Charles Parham, all the way through to a William Branham, a Smith Wigglesworth, a Catherine Coleman, a Kenneth Hagin, on and on and on, all the way to today's characters. If you pray, Lord, your will be done, they'll run you out the room. It's not allowed. You just have to pray in Jesus' name, and it'll be done. Not realizing that to pray in the name of Jesus is to pray in accordance with the will, the nature, the person, his command, who he is. And in his economy, the faithful do suffer. And it is not always what we think it will be. Second, in this section of the reckless doctrines, if that is what the prosperity gospel and its theology does. It desecrates the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mystical miracle movement or the new apostolic reformation does the same thing to the person of Christ. There aren't five points in this section. There's only one because I only need one. 
this movement says that Jesus was not God and that he did not do his signs and wonders as God, and I'll prove it to you. He was just a man showing us how we can do signs and wonders and miracles on earth. The the church, quote, church, the professing church, those who claim to be Christians are obsessed with this right now. Conference after conference, if you claim signs and wonders, even if all it is is a back ailment and some ringing in the ear, if you just claim that everyone's going to get healed, they will flock to your meeting. Saying that the church is called to transform the world through prophecies, healings, miracles, and divine blessings. And this one, and you've probably heard it before, that without signs and wonders, you have no gospel. That the gospel itself is impotent without signs and wonders. They obviously have not read Romans 1.16, and yet they are adamant. I have already, so I... I'll continue, but I'm going to name some names to help you here. Bill Johnson, I want to quote him. This is the pastor of Bethel Church in Redding, California. This is the one that usually divides the room. If we preach this at a conference, people get angry because we're touching their worship music. He's the godfather of the band Jesus Culture and Bethel Music. You can't turn on your radio right now in Southern California without their songs coming on. In his book, When Heaven Invades Earth, on page 29, he says, He, Jesus, performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship with God. Then there's an ellipsis, not as God. If he performed miracles because he was God, then they would be unattainable for us. Now, those of you who understand the differences between a functional canonic Christology and an ontological are saying, well, hold on a minute, Costi. There are some views that say Jesus went in and out of his divinity. Sometimes he was, sometimes he wasn't. So uh, that one is still debatable. Well, let me give you the full-blown view in which Jesus laid aside his divinity. Johnson, in another book on page 50, writes, Jesus had no ability to heal the sick. He couldn't cast out devils, no ability to raise the dead. Still quoting, he said of himself in John 5, 19, the son can do nothing of himself. He had, and I quote, set aside his divinity. That is what you call ontological canonic Christology. It goes back all the way to the council of Chalcedon. They would have run him out as a heretic, possibly even killed him. We don't need to do that today but we do need to take it more seriously than it's taken. Others who hold this view, Kenneth Copeland, Todd White, Todd Bentley, who beats on people, a la Smith Wigglesworth, heralding back to one of the heroes of the faith, who used to say, I'm just knocking the devil out of people. That was a hero of mine because he had audacious faith. And so I wanted to be a wild man, taking risks. Lou Engel, another, Heidi Baker, Michael Koulianos, who married into my family. I don't say this with a calloused heart. I say it with a broken heart. These are real people, souls, real lives at stake. And if, if you're hard-hearted towards them, I understand why it's difficult, but understand they influence a lot of people. See even beyond the false teacher that you're angry at to the hearts that sit blind under their ministry knowing that we have much work to be done. There are still sheep in their 
so-called flocks and Jesus will and can bring them still. In a great book, God the Incarnate by Stephen J. Wellam, uh, he summarizes, even though it confesses to function within the parameters of orthodoxy, uh, ontological, canonic Christology at almost every point, redefines the terms and theological entailments of the Chalcedonian definition. In short, it's not orthodox. You can't say that. You don't partner with him. You don't sing the songs. You don't pay the royalties. You don't buy the books. You stay away from it. I love what Sproul said about the deity of Christ, still the person of Christ, doing all that he did with his divinity still intact, that he was truly man and truly God. His emptying was a humbling as he came down to our level and simply added humanity to his deity. It was subtraction by addition. He never once ceased to be the person of God. So why, if it's clear as day and there's no scriptural foundation for saying such things, why do it? I'll tell you why. I was on that side. Now I'm on this side. Praise God. There's a lot less money on this side, but you don't (laughs) go down. I'll tell you why. You know how we tell men Come to the master's seminary and be trained in doctrine. Other seminaries, come and be trained to rightly divide the word of truth. It'll impact your ministry for the rest of your life. And men come and they go to the Master's Academy International and they pay, I met some Indian pastors, I think they pay, paid a thousand rupee. I mean, it was so easy for them in their country. Men go, we pay tuition to go and be educated. Yes, they do the same thing except to go and preach a false gospel. They charge thousands of dollars luring our young people in saying, do you wanna have power your parents don't? You wanna show the old dead Baptist church how it's done? You wanna show your dad it doesn't take a suit and a tie and some Bible and a stuffy message to change the world? We'll show you how to prophesy. We'll show you how to heal the sick. We'll show you how to pull people out of wheelchairs. We'll show you how to do signs and wonders. Sign on the dotted line, pay the tuition, and come on, we'll show you. It's a money game. And the people getting the richest are the ones at the top of the pyramid. You want to boil down the prosperity gospel, the mystical miracle movement, the NAR, and all of the like. I'll give you it in one simple line. They deify man and they desecrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. They elevate man and desecrate the gospel. Just last week, 40,000 people gathered in Orlando, Florida for the send, mobilizing for missions. They're gonna go and change the world. Fox News called it the next great Jesus movement. It's something I think then we should all be aware of. If there's a next great Jesus movement, I wanna be a part of it, I don't know about you. Unfortunately, the lineup were men who teach a Jesus I don't know, a Jesus the Bible doesn't know. The lineup was led by Benny Hinn, Bill Johnson, Todd White, even a man, many were were shocked to be there. Francis Chan was there. 
no one knows what to do. When you see that, you just wonder. I understand going in and trying to save people, but normally we throw the rope from the shoreline. And so while people are going down the rapids, we throw the rope from safety and security. We don't go get in the water and go off the falls with them. And tens of thousands of young people are being told, let's go, let's go change the world. They're holding their shoes up. They're going to go. These are the leaders that are getting headlines on major news organizations. The next Jesus movement. But it's not the real Jesus. We take off our, our theologian hats for a moment and just get really honest. Let's talk theory and practice. People say that they can heal the sick at will. People say that there's an apostolic era happening and there's real apostles again. People say that they can command the devil to leave with a word. Then do it. People say that they can lay hands on a tumor and make it disappear. People say that they have the prophetic gift so strong they can go person to person to person and read your mail. Theology and practice. Theory and practice. If you say you believe something, you must do it. Theory without practice, though, is empty. I can prove Romans 1.16 to you. I'll preach a hundred sermons and I'll preach the gospel every time and mark my words. At some point, God will see to it that a dead heart will rise because I know my gospel has the power to save because it's not mine, it's his. But to say you wield gifts but leave a hospital full of the sick, what is that? Not one of these can stand nose to nose with a demonically possessed individual full of evil spirits and in one word command the devil to go. They will be like the seven sons of Sceva. Those possessed crying out with the voice of an evil spirit. I know Jesus, I know Paul, who are you? It is a mockery of ministry. It is a mockery of Christology, a mockery of pneumatology, a mockery of the word of God. These men and women are imposters. They are impotent to heal, powerless to set the captives free because they lack the right message and they lack the right person. And so what do we do? We know the kind of church we must have. It must be a pure church. Now I wanna talk to you about who you need to be. To close, let's look at the churchman's devotion. The church wavering in error is merely symptomatic of the real disease. It's a leadership issue. A lack of strong, faithful, fearless, biblical leaders is the issue. You will not have churches run over by false teachers and imposters if there are faithful men who will not move from the pulpit. If there are faithful people in the pews who demand give us the truth and nothing but the truth. If they're gonna desecrate the gospel of Jesus Christ and deny his deity, we must determine to be faithful and shepherd the flock of Jesus Christ I want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and we're gonna spend 
our final times, looking at clear commands by Paul to Timothy, and I want to paint a picture for you of the kind of leader who God will use to reform and transform churches. These are the kind of faithful shepherds that we must be in these times and days. If you want to protect and preserve biblical ecclesiology, be this kind of leader. And we'll start at the beginning. We'll work our way through. We'll jump around. I'll read you different verses. You don't have to turn to all of them, but I recommend if you'd like, you write these down. The first thing you and I must do is pray. In 1 Timothy 2, 1, first of all, Paul says, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf, behalf of all men. All men. I know this is going to bother some of you, but we must pray for those in these movements. We must. I'm sure glad that nobody gave up on me. I'm really glad that Friends didn't slam the door. I am glad that two men from Grace to You, under the guise of taking me to a free lunch, proceeded to interrogate me over Chinese food to make sure I was really converted. <laughs> Twice. <laughs> One of them is six rows back to my right. We must pray for the lost. Paul is clear. He goes on to say that God desires all men to be saved. Uh, I am not the author of salvation, neither are you. We determine and understand that the doctrine of election is clear in the Bible, but I don't know who the elect are, and neither do you. So my job is to pray, and your job is to pray, and my job is to proclaim, and your job is to proclaim so that men might be saved. You need to have the height of a rhino and the heart of a child. Be tough on deceivers, but be tender with people. Two, protect the standard for elders. You know where I'm going with this. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Protect the standard for elders. That's a churchman's devotion. It's a trustworthy statement, Paul says. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Just stop right there. Most false teachers, actually all false teachers, do not make it past number two. There are filthy lives behind the scenes, marked with licentiousness, homosexual practice, adultery, theft, and yet anyone assumes leadership in these circles if they're cool or labeled innovative and an influencer. And yet Paul says in chapter 5, verse 22, don't lay hands on any man suddenly. Don't elect men to the office of elder until they've proven faithful. This is the character issue that often gets the church in a whole lot of trouble. Hold your line on this issue. There is a lot of noise around it right now. There are people that will call you misogynistic and chauvinistic. If you protect and preserve this office, do it. Protect the standard. Be a gatekeeper for biblical church leadership. Third, pay attention to sound doctrine. Paul tells Timothy, 
In chapter 4, verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. As you do, it will ensure salvation. It's going to protect you and those who hear you. Interestingly enough, in 1 Timothy 4, 1-2, he, he's contrasting here with those who fall prey to the doctrines of demons. So everybody pays attention to doctrine of some sort. Which side are you paying attention to? Which side are you on? And yet the cadence often is doctrine's divisive. We just need to love people, brother. We're the church for the unchurched. We're LGBTQ inclusive. We're easy on listeners. But the pulpit must be bolted to the floorboards and each week proclaim the truth of God's word. Don't waver on doctrine. Pay attention to it and guard your holiness. And call people to a life of holiness. Expect holiness. Practice church discipline to preserve the holiness of the church. Four, provide care for the hurting. In contrast to false teachers who prey upon weak women and exploit the vulnerable, which Paul is very clear about with Timothy, he tells him in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 16, to put together a care plan for the hurting. Care for the orphan, care for the widow. Isn't that so interesting that Paul would take time to instruct Timothy? I find it interesting. I also find it very obvious because this is exactly what false teachers still do today. They exploit the poor, the desperate, the marginalized, and the vulnerable. And what are we called to do? To protect them, to serve them, to provide care for them. I'll never forget growing up. Her name was Marina. She was older. She's not probably on this earth anymore. Her husband had just died. She was a widow. I grew up in Canada, so we were in North Vancouver at the time, a place, if you're familiar with uh, Western Canada, a very, very wealthy area in North Van. And she was a widow, had a beautiful home, had millions of dollars. And I remember going with my parents that night and we sat quietly playing in this area that it looked like you would touch a piece of furniture and it would break. And we left that night and I remember sitting in the back seat hearing the celebration in the front as she donated $1 million to our ministry by check. I know what went on that night because as I got older, I realized the system that I was a part of. I know the methodology. It's a lot more easy to get money out of vulnerable and emotional people than it is to get it out of stable people. And that was the strategy. Be different. Fifth, put an emphasis on the eternal. The instruction to Timothy is to tell the rich people not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them, he says in verse 18 of 1 Timothy 6, to do good, be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may be able to take hold of that which is life indeed. Also a qualification of a faithful church leader is to be free from the love of money in contrast with a false teacher who will be obsessed with it. 
They are lovers of money. They're also lovers of pleasure and lovers of self. A faithful shepherd will be the opposite of such a thing. Sixth, prepare to suffer for the gospel. A churchman's devotion includes suffering. I love what Ligon Duncan writes in his book, Does Grace Grow Best in Winter? He says, we ought to be saying when suffering comes, I've been waiting and preparing for you. I knew you were coming because this fallen world is full of the likes of you. I've been preparing by God's grace and by God's word to glorify God as I experience you. He continues, we must get it ingrained into our minds that suffering is an essential part of the Christian experience. You will suffer, he says with exclamation. That's the first thing you need to know. The question remains, will you suffer in a way that honors Christ? Nowhere are we promised an easy life. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 8, join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You want to be a good and faithful churchman? Suffer. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I'm only going to be invited to a few conferences because of preaching that way. Most today don't want to hear it. Don't tell me I'm going to suffer. Number seven, a few more. Point out danger. There is absolutely nothing wrong with you calling a spade a spade. Call it like you see it. Call it like the Bible describes it. It doesn't mean you go on a tangent every Sunday morning and the text doesn't call for it. We can get that wrong sometimes. But there needs to be an unapologetic gear that you can go to when that speed is needed in your church. You need to be able to pinpoint something. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, Paul says to mark them, those who cause dissensions. They're teaching things that are contrary to what Christ taught. You know what the word is? Scopeo. Anyone like to hunt? You put a scope on something, crosshairs. That's what you are to do faithfully for your people. Don't let sheep wander. Give them four options and go, well, I don't want to judge hearts. Call it like it is. Help the flock of God. They were charged at Ephesus to do it. They didn't do it. That's why there had to be two letters telling Timothy, here's how we're going to do it. Do it well. Next, preach the word. Movements die, associations get old, seminaries fade, denominations will waver. What doesn't? A man who will stand in the pulpit and preach the word of God. And then another man comes when that man dies off and the next man stands in the pulpit and preaches the word of God. Generation after generation, one thing will work. It doesn't matter what changes in this world, doesn't matter what social media changes come, what technological advances come. A man of God has always stood throughout the ages and opened this book expounding the word of God for the people. Preach the word. Why? Because there will come a time when people are going to want their ears tickled. So they're going to raise up teachers. They're going to tell them what they want to hear. Don't you dare, and I will never dare, be that man. Give them the word of God. 
our God and his word have answers for suffering, answers for sickness. I've got answers for the future. Do you? I know what to tell somebody in a hospital room that will give them a greater hope than they have at that moment. We don't accept inaccurate prophets because we have a prophetic word. It's been made more sure. I don't need another word for the Lord. I have a word from the Lord. I don't find security, and neither should you, in the securities of this world and the kingdoms of this world, because I have a coming king, and his kingdom will have no end. That's what we preach. Preach the word. Last, pass the torch. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4 to close with me. The language Paul has used in these letters to Timothy goes like this. My true child in the faith, 1 Timothy 1-2. My true child in the faith. Entrust these truths to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, 2 Timothy 2-2. There's a clear effort in Paul's ministry to raise up church leaders for the future. There's a torch being passed Read with me, starting in verse 9 of 2 Timothy 4. Make every effort to come to me soon. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. So Demas left. Demas the deserter is gone. But there's some faithful people still left. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark. And bring him with you, for he's useful to me for service. I guess Mark had a turnaround. Paul wasn't so mad anymore. But Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. He must have trusted Carpus a whole lot because parchments weren't cheap back then. They weren't easy to come by. Cloak would have been valuable. Alexander the coppersmith in verse 14 did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Paul understood there's some people that still get a little skittish when the persecution comes. They'll grow. But the Lord stood with me. And he strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed. Here he goes. He's still preaching. It's the end of the letter. Still going. He'll bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then Paul's not done. The farewell. Greet Prisca and Achilla. The household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. What a track record. 
faithful men and women carrying on the work in the church because a man stood faithfully, poured his life into them, and then they go on to carry the torch. Yes, Paul was very important in an apostolic sense, but he did his job by duplicating himself. He discipled others for ministry. If you want to reform and transform churches, you want to be faithful and be devoted to what God has called you to, make disciples, duplicate yourself. That's what our ministries must be marked with today. That's why we're all here and grateful for the Master's Academy International, training church leaders around the world. There is an army of deceivers being unleashed globally. The enemy is working day and night. He does not take a vacation It is nonstop. He wants to mobilize an effort, of course, to undercut the church. Don't cower in fear. Don't hide and sit back. Don't be apathetic. Don't stay on your side of the fence and say, well, that's not my problem. Determine to say in the end, like Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Determined to be faithful and shepherd the flock of Jesus Christ. Do it for the glory of God and do it for the good of his bride. His church is worth it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now grateful for your word. Grateful for the power of of the gospel, how it has transformed our lives time and time again. It never gets old. It still does what you purposed it to do. I ask that you strengthen the ministries of those who are here today. Help us to be faithful churchmen. Help us to be men and women of God who are faithful on the front lines in whatever role and position you would call us to in your army. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But oh, that you would tarry just a little longer so that more can be saved. Use us for your glory and to that effort. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.